Welcome to Prescribing Prosperity with your hosts, John and Alex Sutsos from MidWealth Financial Services, operating through IPC Securities Corporation. In this podcast, we provide unique insights into wealth management, the psychology of financial decisions, and help listeners place the capital markets into perspective. Our aim is to help physicians, business owners, and other medical professionals to live their dream. Life is to live and enjoy, so we'll also cover health and lifestyle-related topics such as food, dining, travel, and unique experiences. Learn how global trends shape our investment strategy as we help you assemble your roadmap to prosperity. And welcome to the Prescribing Prosperity Podcast with your hosts, John and Alex Sussos. Gentlemen, good to see you. Guys, we're, we're coming into October, guys. Yeah, it's wonderful. A, it's like, a, you know, it's Halloween. It's cool, but it's also spooky. It's very spooky when you start talking about it in financial terms, because historically, this is a month that has uh, produced some really scary surprises. Uh, the most yeah. famous of which, or the most infamous, I should say, of which is the 1929 market crash. In more recent terms and times, there's been the 1987 market crash, which I have some personal uh, connection to. So maybe it's a good time to discuss past market crises in order to gain a better perspective of what we're experiencing today and maybe get some insights into dealing with them and handling them in our investment approach. Alex, let's start with you. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. Thank you for the introduction. And uh, I think that's a, that's a very good perspective. You know, October has historically been uh, known for the uh, the month of the crash, even though September historically has actually been worse in terms of market performance. So since beginning of the since the beginning of the 1900s, we had the uh, the panic of 1907, which was a response to Theodore Roosevelt, who was the president at the time, uh, threatening to rein in some of the uh, the large monopolies of the day. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, as you mentioned, we had uh, Black Thursday, which was on October 24th, 1929. Uh, the one of the most infamous as well was, uh, as you mentioned, uh, and one that you have personal experience with, which was. Uh, Black Monday on October 19th, 1987. That's one that uh, both of you were in the thick of your careers. And so we're going to get into a little bit of uh, uh, of some stories about what happened and what precipitated uh, that market crash. And then finally, the, the last major October crash we had was on uh, October 11th, 2007. And that one wasn't so much a single day crash as it was the, uh, it more marked the beginning of what of the bear market that became better known as the Great Recession, and yeah. uh, from the from that day on October 11th, 2007 until March 6, 2009, the market dropped 54 percent during that time. So obviously, it was a uh, a tremendously volatile period in uh, in the markets, and uh, so there was a great deal of panic and stress that was felt by many investors and many people. There were also two mini market crashes that occurred in uh, in October. We had one in uh, October of uh, 1989, when the leverage buyout of United uh, Airlines fell apart. Mm. And then there was another one on October 27th of 1997 at the time uh, was caused by the ongoing economic crisis in Asia. So we're going to get to uh, to all of those. We're, I'm hoping that today will be the, uh, the beginning of a, a multi-part series. We're going to see how far we get today and uh, determine if it's going to be a, a two or three episode journey. But my plan was to uh, speak with my dad about it. He obviously has a, a lot of perspective. He's worked through most of these uh, crises, and so he has personal experience with what happened and how he managed them and also how his clients responded to them, which I think is uh, is going to provide some excellent perspective. Uh, you know, while, while no two market events are, are, um, are identical, what's important to note is that, you know, a lot of times the, the media tends to blow up what is going on and they're trying. They're they're trying to drive clicks. They're trying to attract listeners and viewers. And as a result of that, a lot of the headlines that come out of the media tend to be a tad hyperbolic. And so it's important to. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> is that is that understating it, Bill? <laughs> I think I think that's probably. Let's just call it accurate right now. Okay. <laughs> well, the the point is uh, essentially that you know there there tends to be a lot of uh, panic that is induced by the headlines that come out, and 
we want people to understand that although nothing is the same, no two events are ever going to be identical. There are a lot of similarities that happen and we have learned a lot from past events. And so, um, as I mentioned, I'm going to uh, take this, uh, take us on a journey here where we can uh, discuss some of these uh, different market events. And then before we begin, Dad, did you have anything that you wanted to uh, to add or chime in on? Uh, the only thing I wanted to add to that uh, was the fact that it's uh, October doesn't cause market crashes. It just happens to be the final, uh, the third quarter of corporate earnings reports. And when uh, what tends to happen at the start of the year, you have corporations who are making earnings projections into the year. And every quarter, they update those earnings projections and guidance. And in a bad year, every quarter uh, tends to get uh, lower and lower earnings projections. And in the third quarter, uh, when the co companies enter the earnings confessional, uh, they've run out of time for the year. And so they they, they can't whitewash it any further. And so uh, they uh, lay it on the line in, in Q3 uh, earnings reports, which are about to begin with a JP Morgan announcement on the 15th of this month. And so that is typically uh, why October tends to be the bottoming. Uh, and that's another important factor is uh, October is uh, the bottoming process of any decline in the market. It's not usually when the decline is initiated, even back in 87. I know we'll get into that in a little bit, but in 87, the market peaked in the middle of August of 87, didn't peak in October. So October is uh, when things get uh, washed out and then uh, we restart from there. So just a little bit of perspective on why October is so notorious. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a great point to make that a lot of times it tends to be, uh, it's not October that's the bad month. It's the uh, the events that precipitate it uh, that ultimately lead to uh, what, ha what has happened in October historically. So we're actually not going to talk about the, uh, an October crisis to start. We're actually just going to talk about something that is a, uh, a market crisis that we experienced in the 1970s that has a lot of relevance to what's going on today. And, and that is the period of stagflation that we had uh, throughout the 1970s. Right now, obviously, there's a lot of concern with regards to what the federal uh, or the Fed, uh, which is the central bank in the United States, is going to do to continue to combat the ongoing issue with inflation in the economy. And so, and, you know, Alex, can I interrupt you here? Let me just yeah, jump absolutely. in for one second. Before sure. you get too far down the road, for listeners who may not be familiar with the term stagflation, do you want to give them a really quick explanation of what's, what a period of stagflation is? Absolutely. Thank you for that, Bill. That's a, that's a great perspective to add. You know, when, when we say stagflation, it's a combination of two different things. It is a stagnant economy. So that is an, an economy that is neither uh, is either not growing or worse, it is contracting, uh, combined with a period of high inflation. So what we have right now in, uh, in our economy is uh, an economy that is still growing. Uh, it is growing at a diminishing rate, but it is still growing. But we also have a period of high inflation. And what happened in the 1970s was there was contraction in the economy combined with uh, a rapid inflation. And uh, so that was a, a very difficult economic period. Mm -hmm. And it was very difficult to pull the economy out of that almost death spiral, if you will. And so... Uh, when a lot of people look at what's happening today, there's a lot of questions as to whether or not we're going to return to uh, uh, to that period and that and that type of economic uh, uncertainty that we had in the 1970s. And so, although my dad was not working at the time, he obviously lived through it, as did you, Bill, and uh, both of you have uh, have some experience on that. So, uh, Dad, I'm going to start by asking you: Can you tell us a little bit about what precipitated the occurrence of the stagflation in the uh, U.S. economy in the 1970s? Yes, yeah, so the the uh, 1970s inflation, I think, had two principal causes. You had uh, uh, the Nixon Nixon taking the the U.S. off the gold standard uh, in 1973, and you also had the Yom Kippur War, which precipitated the Arab oil embargo, causing energy prices to skyrocket. Uh, and obviously, when when you uh, allow the U.S. dollar to float freely without the anchor of gold holding it down, it uh, gives flexibility to the government to spend more money. And uh, essentially, those were the two primary contributors to, to the inflation of the 1970s. And you also had a central banker at the time, Arthur Burns, who, um, in hindsight, did not have 
autonomy, um, or I should say independence in his position as head of the Federal Reserve. He was influenced by uh, Richard Nixon at the time, and he was acting more as though he was part of his cabinet uh, than he was uh, an independent overseer of the money supply. And so he was not necessarily doing what would have been appropriate at the time. And he, and it, he did allow the money supply to increase in the initial stages of of the uh, 1970s, and uh, that that was a that, those were all major contributors to the way the decade played out. If you want a, an anecdote about what I recall of the time, I was a young boy at the time, but I do recall going to the corner store to get a loaf of bread uh, for my mom, and that was twenty five cents. And uh, today, what does a loaf of bread cost? Four and a half dollars. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, if if we talk, I'm about, only laughing because it's true. <laughs> yeah, it's well, it's it's actually sad. I mean, we hear the narrative today that uh, uh, certain central bankers historically got control and wrestled inflation back down and, and defeated it, but inflation has not been defeated. When you when you have a loaf of bread going from twenty five cents to four and a half dollars, uh, that means inflation has been ongoing and continuous. Every inflation increase, whether it's 1% or 10%, is cumulative and is permanent. Right. And so while the rate of change on an annual basis may have slowed after uh, 1981, and it slowed from 1981 up until uh, recently, um, even a 2% incremental increase, an incremental increase of 2%, uh, piles on top in a compounding manner on previous price increases. So inflation has never been defeated. It's been with us continuously, uh, and uh, it will likely continue to be with us into the future. But it's the rate of change that I think everyone is focused on in the 70s uh, certainly was uh, very troubling during that time. Yeah, and so you know, just to add on to that, I think one thing to keep in mind is that the, the standard inflation is, is an intentional choice. So the the actions of Paul Volcker were uh, were such that it brought it down to the intentional rate of of two percent, but that two percent is still a a by design uh, function of the of the economy. Um, so that sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say Paul Volcker did not have a two percent target. Uh, he wanted to get down inflation down under control. The Fed eventually did did create a target of two percent, but it, it wasn't Paul Volcker who initiated. Was it Greenspan? That. Uh, I'm, I don't recall off the top of my head if it was Greenspan, but there was a, a, a it would have been around the early 1990s. So if it was around early that would 1990s, have been, that would have been, yeah, that would have been yeah. Greenspan. That, that would have been Greenspan, yeah. yeah. So that's what that's when uh, they they decided that there was going to be an, an inflation target of about two percent. Canada right. did the same thing, right? Okay. So you know, building upon that, how likely are we to see a repeat of? Uh, uh, of what happened in the 1970s. And, and before you answer that, I'm just going to throw out a couple of statistics here that I, I pulled out when I was doing my uh, my prep for this. You know, GDP fell from 7.2% in 1972. GDP growth, I should say, fell from 7.2% in 1972 to minus 2.1% 2 in 1974. And during that time, inflation jumped from 3.4% to 12.3% uh, by 1974. And, uh, and in some places like the United Kingdom, it actually rose as high as 25%. Uh, and in, in real terms, the U.S. economy didn't fully recover until the uh, until August of 1993 uh, in terms of uh, in terms of pricing. So uh, and then the other thing that to mention was the oil embargo resulted in a 300% increase in the price of oil. And, and that was on a global basis in the United States it was actually higher. So uh, anyway, so going back to uh, my original question was, how likely are we to see a repeat of something like this right now, given where the economy is at and given where inflation is at in, uh, in the United States? It's, it's, a, it's an excellent question. It's a very difficult question to answer because the events are still unfolding. At the present time, the inflation was caused by an intentional shutdown of the global economy in response to the COVID pandemic. And then an offsetting expansion in the money, money supply uh, in addition to uh, a major expansion in uh, fiscal policy expenditures. So that combination of, of money flooding into the financial system from above uh, in, in a manner that resulted in uh, far more money in circulation than had been in circulation prior to the COVID pandemic is what has spurred on the current inflation. 
Now, it is believed uh, by the Central Bank of the United States that uh, the way to deal with the uh, inflation is by raising interest rates and tightening the money supply. And that is one tool that's available in doing so. Uh, but in addition, but unfortunately, contrasting that at the present time is fiscal policy in North America, which is actually expansionary. Uh, the governments are spending still way too much money and they're actually fighting their own central banks, not perhaps intentionally, but for political reasons, they continue to spend more money than is necessary in the economy. And so when you have these two opposing forces going at it, it explains why inflation is taking so long to come down. Uh, there is uh, arguably more money uh, available in savings uh, in North America because of the uh, fiscal expenditures by governments. Uh, than was previously believed, and this is delaying the reduction in inflation. Uh, when infl inflation gets very dangerous once la labor costs start going up, because labor represents three quarters of the, uh, the costs of most corporations. And uh, compounding what happened in the 1970s, you had the uh, auto workers union, uh, which started getting together and, and demanding higher higher rates. And once you get inflation embedded in wage demands, uh, then it becomes very problematic. So everyone is watching what's going on in the labor supply and uh, and uh, labor uh, increase uh, requests for increases. And uh, here we go again. Um, in the last month or two, we've had uh, renewed uh, uh, strikes uh, by in the big three uh, labor unions for the uh, for our automobile workers. So. Is this inflation going to be tamed? Are we going to get a repeat of the 1970s? I, it's hard to say. Obviously, one of the major inputs being the removal of the uh, gold standard um, is not in play. Uh, so that's something we don't have to worry about. Um, and a better understanding and greater independence of the central bank uh, re uh, relative to the uh, political administration is, uh, is better today than it was in the 1970s. But you you really need cooperation on the on the fiscal side. The the uh, unfortunate catalyst of the uh, war that's erupted uh, in Israel and the attacks on Israel uh, on the weekend on the anniversary of the the Yom Kippur War are not helping the situation. So uh, it does create additional turmoil and instability and. Uh, as well as the ongoing uh, Ukraine-Russian uh, conflict, which is the also ongoing, siphoning yeah. money out of the... Yeah, yeah. So you have all these, uh, you know, wars are inflationary by their very nature. And countries don't have uh, uh, monetary resources for wars. And so they always end up borrowing. And whenever you borrow large amounts of money, inevitably you, you have to pay it back. And there's two ways you can repay it. You can uh, actually uh, reallocate your resources to repaying the debt, which means you're you're cutting from other expenditures, or you allow your currency to devalue, and uh, that's inflating away the, the the expenditure. And that's essentially what all governments choose to do because it's uh, politically the most expedient. And uh, we're we're and we're. Uh, we're seeing that uh, all around the world. Uh, the U.S. dollar being the world's reserve currency is maintaining some stability with the uh, rising interest rates. It, it was the first out of the gate to raise interest rates during the, the, uh, the post-COVID period. Um, and Europe was, uh, was a little uh, lagging in their response. Uh, so the U.S. dollar right now is maintaining uh, its value on an international FX basis. However, um, the reality is our, the cost of goods and services have gone up dramatically in a permanent fashion, and they're not going to go back down. And um, so the inflation lingers. Now, the economic statistics we're monitoring are, are showing us that um, there is some pain in the economy. There are, there are pockets where there's uh, contraction occurring. Uh, we not, don't yet have a a recession, but um, th there is evidence that uh, that things are slowing down, and so the, we're heading into the uh, the final year of the presidential cycle. And as we all know, politically, it, it is not expedient to have a recession in the final year of the of the presidential cycle. So I, I think the central bank is probably going to reach a point where they're going to be in a bit of a panic if they see the economy slowing too quickly, in which case they'll start cutting rates. And if inflation has not yet dropped to the desired level, then it might 
uh, cause it to uh, cycle back up a little bit. So it remains to be seen what's going to happen um, in in uh, the balance of this decade. Uh, I, in, in absolute terms, I don't think we're going to see the interest rates that we saw in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, uh, we're going to see interest rates that are quote unquote more normal. And and some people with a historical perspective today are, are, are will tell you exactly that, that their current interest rates are actually more normal than they are high. Uh, especially when compared to the 1970s. So we might see a cycling of interest rates, perhaps from 3% to 8%, uh, rather than a a decline back to the levels we had prior to COVID and and remaining there. But there are so many variables, and it's it's really hard to predict. Okay, that's a a good answer. And I think one of the uh, the long-term takeaways from uh, from the events of the 1970s was the creation of a truly fiat currency, uh, which has resulted in uh, in greater currency volatility over the last however many years, we want to call it 50, 50 plus years. So the next major event that happened, obviously, was something that both of you experienced, which was the 1987 market crash. Uh, Bill, actually, before we uh, we began recording here, you told me a story that I'd uh, I'd love for you to be able to uh, to mm. relay. Uh, before we uh, we get to that, though, I want people to uh, to understand that Bill was a is a Peabody winning journalist with his work on uh, covering the 1987 market crash with CNN at the time. And so uh, Bill actually had a, a rather unique experience. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened, Bill? Yeah, well, it, it, it it's the kind of scare you don't forget. And it's an, it was an interesting time period. Uh, I was producing the money line with Lou Dobbs uh, on CNN at the time when the market crash happened. Um, the thing that has always struck me, and I always remember every every October, is that on the Friday before Black Monday, we had a stock market analyst on. She was a technical analyst. Her name was Elaine Garzarelli. She came on and she made a prediction based on her numbers that she was seeing on a technical analysis basis. And in short, she basically said, these are really scary numbers. I don't know what's going to happen, but I got a feeling something really bad is about to happen in the stock markets. She was right. She left the show Friday night, Monday morning, the markets opened and the bottom fell out of the markets. And I mean, they fell out. John, you probably remember it well. It was a very, very scary day in the markets. So, that that story has always remained with me. And the terrible thing in my mind is that uh, Elaine Garzarelli, who should be lauded for her technical analysis and prescience, instead suffered a lot of death threats. And people were causing her and blaming her for the crash of the market, which was just patently absolutely absurd. But, um, you know, it went on to really cause her a lot of trouble with her life instead of making her uh, a, a hero, if if you will, in terms of being mm-hmm. able to look at the numbers and say, "Hey, some bad stuff is about to happen. People should pay attention." So, yeah. Well, it's interesting you bring up Elaine's name because um, I, I know Elaine uh, not at a personal level, on a right. professional level. She uh, she actually uh, ran some money for a mutual fund company here in Canada called O'Donnell uh, back in the 1990s, and uh, she's uh, quite an impressive economist uh, mm-hmm. and. Um, she obviously recovered from the 87 crisis and went on to um, a pretty good career. Um, 1987 was an extremely peculiar year. I began my career in October of 1986. Mm. And um, what I remember about 1987 was uh, the market just started to go, to go up early in the year and just continued um, by August of 1987. Uh, and I'm going from memory here. Uh, the TSX was up over 40%. I venture to guess the S&P 500 was up um, a similar amount. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Um, and uh, while driving around in the car, going from appointment to appointment, I had the business news on and they had a, an analyst from one of the major brokerage firms in Toronto talking about the, how how great the market was <laughs> and can it, can it continue? And um, the uh, the analyst uh, was saying, well, you know what it is, uh, these results are uh, the market's doing really, really well. And uh, we just don't see any reason why it's uh, going to stop. We, we believe things will continue to improve. Um, and 
I find that unusual in today's world that they would be such cheerleaders uh, for the market, um, especially with the knowledge that uh, there's there was a uh, at the time interest rates are, had already started to rise during during the uh, uh, the period, yeah. and when you get a contraction in the money supply, inevitably it's going to squeeze the the asset values of of uh, both real estate and uh, and uh, st- stocks. Um, so, so by the middle of 1987, where these very high valuations, and then a turn was made, and it, it, there was a, a steady decline from the middle of August of 87 until what uh, unfolded um, in October of 1987. I also remember October 16th, which was the Friday. The market actually had dropped five percent on that Friday, right. and I uh, had a client, a client at the time, who had given me some money to invest. I thought this is great; you know, buying in at a bit of a discount. Uh, <laughs> uh, Ouch! Wow! In hindsight, that was uh, that, that that was an unpleasant feeling. Uh, and uh, and then on the Monday, uh, all hell broke loose, and, um, and we were far less sophisticated at the time. I was with a, a, a firm that uh, dealt only with mutual funds and we did not have stock market terminals. So we relied on, on, a, on, a, on a business um, relationship uh, with a, a brokerage firm that would uh, provide us with uh, market quotes back then. And remember, these were the nascent days of computers. So they were, they were not common then as they are today. And so as uh, the market began to fell, the, the news would filtered into our office uh, that what was going on. And uh, we'd be we'd have an open line to this uh, firm in, in Toronto. And uh, we were uh, throughout the day getting getting valuations. And I don't remember if it was about noontime or not, but um, we were saying, you know, what's the market down now? It's down 100. What's it down now? 200. What's it down now? 300. What's it down now? And then the answer came back. We don't know. It's in free fall, and uh, the ticker is behind, and we we don't know. And um, I can tell you that was uh, just relaying that story right now is giving me goosebumps, um, and how terrified I was because I was a young guy at the time. I was twenty five years old. I just started my career. At when you're a yeah, a year prior, I'd put client money in, and uh, I was terrified. I didn't want to see my clients lose money. Um, I didn't know what was going to happen um, uh, with my career. I thought perhaps it was over. And uh, coincidentally, our firm had a, a meeting with a portfolio manager in Toronto at McKenzie Financial, uh, which had been previously scheduled. Um, and so uh, that that was essentially uh, a day or two after the market crash. So we went to that meeting, and uh, there were updating us and saying, look, um, we're, we don't know how this is going to all unfold, but the prices are ridiculously low and we're buying and we're buying like crazy with all the cash we have. And uh, then they gave us some perspective about uh, expectations for a rebound and uh, the timeline that they expected a rebound. They didn't know, obviously, but they said, you know, it could take a year, it could take three years, but um, eventually it's going to rebound. Um, and so, uh, the, the the washout occurred uh, and uh, there was a response by central banks and eventually markets did begin to rebound again. And it took about three years. And unfortunately, we we then, uh, as interest rates were attempted to normalize again, we, we uh, mm-hmm. they triggered a recession in 1990, 91. That was oh. uh, known today as the savings and loans uh, crisis. crisis. In the, Hold on. In the, yeah. You're getting ahead of us here, Dad. So um, before we before we <laughs> move preview. into the it's a look at it, look at it as a preview of what's to come, Alex. Yes, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we get to the 1990s, which are uh, a great decade because that's when I was born, uh, <laughs> we're gonna just finish out uh, what happened here in 1987. So uh, just to give some statistics to bring some color to what actually happened for those who didn't experience it firsthand, the drawdown on the Dow Jones Industrial Average was 22.61% on that day, October 19th, 1987. The S&P 500 lost 20.47% on that day. Worldwide losses were estimated at $1.71 trillion U.S. It was the single largest single day drop in U.S. market history. 
And uh, one of the uh, potential causes, obviously, there were a number of different things that you touched upon, Dad, uh, but in terms of uh, what caused such a, uh, a panic level of selling that happened on that one day was the, this was the infancy, as you mentioned, computers were around, they were not readily available to everybody, but it was the beginning of computerized trading. It was also the beginning of uh, pricing in uh, or computer models pricing in options. And so what was happening was the the market started to move and the options pricing could not keep up with the changing prices that were occurring in the market. And that started to cause panic amongst the uh, large institutional investors because they could not properly price in the risk that was occurring within the market. They could not exercise options to get themselves out of positions uh, or conversely, potentially even uh, jump in to provide support to buy back at, uh, at certain price levels. And so what ended up happening was a free fall in the, uh, in the market, the aftermath for which was uh, the creation of circuit breakers. So in 1988, the uh, uh, circuit breakers were put in place to prevent drastic market drops from happening again. So as trading is suspended, as soon as the market drops 7%, so what ends up happening is the market shuts off for 15 minutes once the market falls by 7%. After another 6% drop, when the market reaches 13%, there's another 15-minute suspension in trading. If the market drops 20%, trading is halted for the remainder of the day. And so they, these are safety mechanisms that have been put in place in order to prevent this kind of frenzied hysteria that was happening uh, on that day when obviously information was not as read readily available like it is today and to prevent people from uh, getting into panic selling, which can further depress market prices uh, unnecessarily. And so uh, one thing I wanted to just cover, Dad, if, uh, if you don't mind, was I wanted to ask you about uh, about your experience with uh, one of your clients because uh, you had uh, you told me a story about one of your clients and having to relay that information that was passed along from Mackenzie. Well, it's interesting because in addition to having that meeting with Mackenzie Financial following the uh, the big crash, uh, prior to that, I actually had a pre-scheduled meeting with my largest client, and uh, I went to visit her at her condominium in, uh, in Don Mills. And um, I was rather scared. I didn't know how she was going to respond to the events that, unfo I, that unfolded. And uh, we sat down together and uh, she said, uh, so uh, what, do you, what do you think, uh, uh, how do you think things are going to be unfolding in, in the next little while? I said, well, it's it's obviously hard to know, but uh, in speaking with the portfolio managers, uh, we believe uh, the market's going to bottom out and, and eventually start to climb back up and it's going to take some time, um, but it will take some time and unlike, it's unlikely going to be months, going to be more like years. And um, I wasn't looking forward to her response, but she was very calm about the whole thing. And she said, you know what? Uh, this is not all the money I have in the world. I, I don't need it. And uh, we'll just wait and we'll wait for the recovery. And that was actually, as a young guy in the business at the time, I was uh, very relieved by her response and her very calm demeanor. She was uh, in her mid 70s at the time. Obviously, she had a lot of experience uh, in, in the world and, uh, and was actually a, a business owner. Uh, so uh, it, uh, prior to retiring. So she was not the kind of person who was going to panic. Was she the uh, the client who, uh, I believe, her father had lost a lot of money in the Great Depression? Or no, was that a no, different no. Client? that's a different client. So uh, yeah, I had a meeting with her too. <laughs> that that one was the one I was referring to. That's the one I thought. You yeah, were going to well, that about. that meeting uh, occurred uh, the week after that, and she was a referral from the first lady. And uh, she was not as calm. <laughs> well, she and, was reticent to get involved in the stock market to begin yes, with. Yes, yeah, happened. yes, yeah. So this this other lady, uh, we'll, we'll we'll call her uh, Betty. Uh, we'll, we'll call her Betty. <laughs> so let's say uh, Betty, uh, when she um, uh, was referred to me, I I met her in the summer of 1987, um, prior to the market decline and. Uh, because I came so highly recommended from, from the first lady, um, 
she she was open to a meeting and I was explaining to her what we did and how we invested money and and then she t- told me a, a long story about how her her um, her husband had lost a lot of money in the in the 29 crash mm. and it resulted in uh, her having to spend time uh, uh, living with her mother-in-law which she wasn't happy about um but anyway she um she decided to uh, stick, stick her toe in the water and she uh, put some money in to be invested. And um, obviously that was a, f- a couple of months before the uh, October decline. And uh, she was very upset about it. Um, or I, I assume she was upset about it as I went to her condominium uh, or sorry, to her apartment building uh, to see her and bring her up to speed as to uh, how we, we viewed things unfolding. And uh, this this is again before uh, mobile phones were uh, were uh, available, and I I got to her uh, apartment. I knocked on the door, and there was there was no response. And I thought, wow, uh, he's not here. I wonder what's going on. Um, then I uh, thought, well, I I can't phone. Um, I don't have a phone. Uh, thought okay maybe I'll go to a payphone maybe call her but I, I, I thought I'd, I'd 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 wait a few minutes so, so I, I waited like five ten minutes at her door what a world. yeah I, I waited five or ten minutes at, at her door knocked a few more times no answer and then okay so it cut me some slack here guys I was twenty five years old and I was a little bit terrified uh, let's just say I was a lot of bit terrified yeah uh, and uh, I thought what if she died. <laughs> she was an old she was she was an older woman i thought well you know maybe she died I, maybe she's in the apartment and i'm thinking oh that's awful you know what am i going to do and then i thought to myself well i don't have to tell her <laughs> so, i was relieved that's a that's a 25 year old male brain <laughs> that's, that's a 25 year old male brain and i said wow I don't but what if it had else. killed her dad what if the, <laughs> the crash had killed her well that I, that crossed my mind too that was the next thought that crossed my mind i was very upset that oh, i can't be happy if if the woman died because of this this is awful you know i, I had all this guilt uh running through me so so I, I went downstairs, um, I walked across the street, I found the payphone. Uh, I called, there was no answer. 40 minutes go by. I, I called again and uh, she answered. I thought, hey, you're there, what happened? Oh, I was at the hairdresser and it ran over time and, uh, <laughs> and I just got home. I thought, oh, well, that's good. I, you know, in my head, I'm saying, oh, she's not dead, right? That's a good thing. Um, but then I thought, oh, geez, now I have to go up and explain myself. Uh, so I, I, I went upstairs and uh, I knocked on the door and she opened the door. We, I walked in and we, we sat down at her dinner table and we had a conversation. And uh, she, she told me, so she was very upset and she was very unhappy. And uh, I, w- I was very upset and I offered to pay her back money, which was, uh, that's a big no-no today, by the way, you can't do that. Um, and, uh, but I was, I was young. I was scared. I didn't know what else to say. And, um, she said, where are you going to get the money? I said, I don't know if I, I'll, I'll figure out a way. And, uh, uh, she paused for a while. She says, you know what, we'll, we'll just, uh, we'll listen to what your, your, the experts told you at your firm and, uh, we'll wait for it to recover. And, uh, I, I left somewhat relieved, but, um, uh, later on as, as markets got better and recovered, our, our relationship, um, uh, strengthened tremendously. She eventually added more money. She made a lot of money and profits over the course of time. And, uh, in the fullness of time, looking back, she said, I trusted you because you offered to pay me back. And I was looking at you, you're 25 years old. You had nothing. And uh, I knew anyone who, who was willing to to make such an offer can't be uh, a bad person. And so uh, I, that offer, um, which I, I repeat, <laughs> shouldn't be, uh, that's not permitted in our industry today. And uh, probably, and I wasn't aware, it was, I was new at the time and there's uh, the regulations weren't what they were today. So um, probably wouldn't be allowed at that time either but um, I was scared and that's what I said and she that impressed her sufficiently to to boost her confidence in me mm-hmm. and uh, I, I didn't pay her back I didn't have the money to pay her back and she didn't ask me to pay her back um, 
but uh, it all worked out in the end over the course of time. We had a great relationship. She was one of my one of the nicest people I ever worked with her and along with the lady who referred her to me. And uh, to this day, I'm I'm dealing with uh, with her children. So um, wow. it, it turned out to be a very good um, relationship. And 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 the markets and the, the the moral of the story here is the markets eventually did recover and did go on to higher levels. It the, did, but uh, you can I, I want to jump in here one because one ahead. of the things that strikes me in that story, John, in addition to the, the the point that you just made, is it underlines something really important here in the sense of it's really important to trust your financial advisor. Yeah. It's important that you know when you're looking at a financial advisor, choosing one, that you choose somebody that you can look at and go, I trust this person. They're not not they're going to make me an offer to give me my money back. But I've, there's a sense of trust. There's a sense of a sense of you know that in the relationship. You know the the my first and that's a great point, Bill. And my first client who referred the second client, and uh, that's let's call her um, uh, let's call her Lucy. Uh, Lucy, uh, when when I met her and uh, she she gave me a large check to invest on her behalf. Um, upon giving me the check, uh, she she said to me, I'm going to Florida for six months to take good care of this. And I was flabbergasted that anyone would give me uh, such a large uh, sum of money and then and then trust me enough to <laughs> to look right. after it while, while, they, while they were in uh, leaving the country. And um, I, I, what I did following uh, following that that uh, that deposit, and this was a year earlier in 1986, is that because I didn't have any other clients, I would on a typewriter uh, type her a letter every every week and give her an updated uh, market value of her portfolio and let her know what was going on in the financial news. And uh, she was so impressed by my level of communication for the six months I was she was away that it just boosted her comf- uh, confidence immensely. And um, a year, many, many years later, um, uh, she said uh, to me that she has a, a good, se- she has a, a, a good sense about people. She can sense when people are, are good and trustworthy and honest. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, later in life, uh, she, she um, passed away at the age of 96. So she was my client for 22 years. Uh, but in the final five years of her life, she developed dementia. And when I used to go visit her in the long-term care facility, um, uh, I would I would introduce myself. She says, "Do I know you?" I said, "Yeah, you know me. Uh, we, I, I, I've been looking after your investments for for twenty odd years." And she says, "You know what? I don't remember you, but I know you're a good person." And and. Um, that was really uh, heartwarming. Yeah, it's heartwarming and high praise, John. High praise. Yeah. So, and uh, she too had children, and uh, they too to this day are still working with me. So, um, I, I've prided myself on always being open and honest with people and uh, having a excellent communication. And I, and I think with, with excellent communication comes uh, trust. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the the big takeaway here from uh, from the. 1987 event was in order to get through these these events because obviously they do happen from time to time and we're likely to see some events uh, of a similar nature occur in the future hopefully not to the same magnitude just to remind people uh, or to give context uh, further context to what i gave earlier people were afraid in 1987 that this was going to be a second coming of the great depression when it happened and so uh, it was a, a deeply troubling time for investors and and the average citizen and what what became a, a key takeaway from that was how in order to deal with uh, these types of events, communication is key. You know, my dad, we'll, we'll get to uh, the early 2000s in the future. But uh, one of the things that my dad has talked about at length in the past is the day after uh, 9-11 occurred, each and every one of his clients had a, a letter from he and his business partner on their doorstep the next day. And and how it, it's important that whenever these types of events happen, we know they're going to happen. They're beyond the control of any one individual. But what's important to uh, manage these events is to communicate. And effective communication can uh, help ease the burden and ease the pain. And so with that, I'm going to I'm going to slowly transition us over here. So we, we got out of the 87 market crash. We got out of uh, 
the events that transpired there. And I wanted to uh, get your uh, get your perspective, Dad, on uh, what came next, which was the savings and loan crisis of uh, 1989 and uh, into the early 1990s. So, uh, as I noted earlier, following the 87 crash, there was a, a response by the central bank uh, to ease the uh, money supply a little bit. But then um, they uh, they did that for a short time and they, they went back to raising interest rates to try and avoid having a major inflation. And that uh, pricked the, the real estate bubble that had been brewing throughout the 1980s. And uh, we ended up having in the United States a collapse of um, hundreds of savings and loans, which are small uh, banks uh, in the U.S. Uh, that were highly leveraged to the real estate market. And uh, that created a, an, a new market decline in the early 1990s. And then uh, in 19, uh, to compound that, in 1991, we had the uh, first Gulf War which uh, erupted in uh, January of 1991, uh, just about a, a month before you were born. And uh, that was a very stressful time. And I was uh, agonizing as a new father, what kind of world I was bringing my, my child into. Um, and uh, so that took a couple of years to play out. And the market declined by a, a significant amount uh, at the time. So, um once again, the uh, emphasis here was on communication with the clients, explaining what was going on, helping them understand. Uh, what is interesting, though, is um, today we have so much information available. We're so in tune with what's going on in the capital markets. We get reports on a daily basis. But there's an old expression that says ignorance is bliss. Uh, mm -hmm. Back in 1991, I had a, a, a lady who was retired a widow, and she had uh, money that had matured in a, in a GIC, and she wanted to put it, invest the money for the benefit of her children. Uh, so she didn't need the money. And she says, uh, invest it in a way that's going to grow as, as much as possible. And um, this is after the market had already declined by material amount. And uh, so I did. I invested it in a, in a, in a good mutual fund at, at the time. And uh, she never paid attention. She couldn't care less. She says, uh, this is a gift to my kids. I'm not going to think about it. And by the time she passed away, which was about 10 years later, the, the account had tripled. So she had <laughs> she performed extremely well. But it, it's it's the key here is she wasn't trying to second guess what was going on in the world. She wasn't trying to be an economist. She wasn't trying to be a stock market guru. Mm. She wasn't worried about political uh, events unfolding. She just said, I want to invest this money for growth. You know what you're doing. Invest it for growth. And then she forgot about it. And uh, as I said, ignorance is bliss. She didn't, well, didn't pay. And I think what ends up happening is the people who uh, are daily market value uh, checkers, if you will. Uh, I'm trying to find a better term for it, but we'll just go checkers. We, I used to deal with them a lot when I used to uh, work at CI Investments. I, I started in uh, the... Uh, as a financial services representative over there. I used to have a gentleman who called in every single day, one of the market value of his account. And I remember thinking, what what are you doing with this information? Because what ends up happening is if you check every single day, you end up riding a roller coaster of emotion where you're constantly tied up in the ups and downs of uh, of the market. And obviously the markets are never flat or steady. You know, everybody would love a 45 degree angle straight up uh, in perpetuity, but that's not the way things work. And there's a lot of little bumps and dips along the way. And uh, what ends up happening is a lot of times people make panic decisions that end up hurting the long-term value of their portfolio because they get tied up in short-term fluctuations. And that can significantly erode value uh, when it comes to achieving their long-term goals. Uh, one of the things that we tell our clients, and uh, my dad mentions it every single week in his newsletter, is volatility is not risk. The real risk is the permanent loss of capital, which occurs when you sell and realize mm -hmm. the losses in your account. And so we always try and provide perspective and guide people so that they don't they don't get tied up in the minutia of the daily market meanderings. We need to maintain long term perspective. And that's where we come in is our job is to help clients maintain long term perspective, understand what's going on and then make the appropriate decisions without the burden of 
behavioral biases and emotional ties to the money that uh, that is being invested. So anyway, to, Dad, I'm going to... Yeah, sorry, sorry just to add context that I, I spoke about the market falling in a material fashion, the decline was about 25% right. uh, during that period from peak to crop in, in the S&P 500 index. And so tell us a little bit specifically about the savings and loan. Like what, what exactly happened? Well, the interest rates were going up and, and uh, was, there was rampant speculation in, in real estate. I remember in uh, approaching prospective clients in the late 1980s, uh, speaking to them about uh, investing in, in uh, 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 stocks via mutual funds. Uh, people were, uh, as there, as, you know, let me backtrack a bit. The objective is always financial planning, accumulating your assets uh, toward a um, building capital for your retirement. So the vehicle was you know, were the mutual funds uh, to grow your money. And uh, people at the time were saying, well, you know, why, why would I want to do that? I own this property and I have this uh, investment property and I'm making money and making big money and I'm buying additional properties. And, you know, everyone, everyone owned the property. And, uh, you know, it got to the point where uh, unsophisticated people were uh, like, uh, and, and, you know, this is, <laughs> I don't want anyone to get offended, but uh, elderly people who had uh, no fundamental understanding of economics or money or investing were saying, well, I want to buy a condo to invest in. And uh, so there, there is this euphoria about investing in uh, in. Uh, Condos before they before they were constructed pre-construction condos, and uh, so there was this mania going on with real estate. So so uh, it was uh, happening throughout North America, and it got to the point where the real estate valuations were excessive, inflate interest rates were starting to climb because uh, of inflationary pressures, and it got to the point where people uh, through the higher interest rates could not afford to. To pay the prices uh, for for the mortgages or the lending, and so the you had uh, when buyers run out and, and sellers exceed buyers, you get a decline, and and that's what happened. And uh, unfortunately, in the U.S., uh, the banking system is very different than the banking system here in in Canada. And uh, many of these uh, organizations were very small, but collectively they added up to a big amount. Uh, interestingly enough, in in that period in Canada. Had its only life insurance company bankruptcy as Confederation Life, I believe, and uh, it was at that time uh, all the trust companies here in Canada, uh, and and back in the uh, 1980s and before the 1980s, the financial industry was separated into what were known as the four pillars. You had uh, banking, you have trust companies, and life insurance companies, and you had investment dealers, and they were all separately owned and uh, it had nothing to do with one another. After the 87 market crash, because of a lack of liquidity in the financial system, uh, the independent investment dealers could not afford to remain independent. At least most of them could not. And so they were all acquired by the big five banks in Canada. And uh, today we know uh, RBC Dominion Securities, but it used to be called uh, just Dominion Securities. And uh, and, and similar situation with the, the rest of the banks. Uh, once the savings and loan crisis happened, all these uh, companies in, in the States, they were savings and loans, but here in Canada, trust companies uh, were specializing in uh, uh, lending to uh, commercial property uh, uh, buyers and also to individual property buyers. And they overextended themselves on, on uh, real estate lending. And so when the crash happened in real estate, um, they were uh, having financial difficulties. So the banks, once again, here in Canada, stepped in and bought up all the trust companies and uh, and unfortunately, one of the life insurance companies, Confederation Life, actually did go bankrupt. Um, so it was a very tumultuous time in the early 1990s. Real estate investment uh, mutual funds ex actually existed at the time, which was very unusual if you think about it, because real estate is a is a an illiquid asset. It doesn't have a, a, a mark to market mechanism on a daily basis. It, it's based on appraisals, and yet they offer there's an, uh, these mutual funds that existed that allowed people to invest in commercial real estate uh, and get priced daily, yet the underlying asset is not priced daily. And so this, this was an incongruency that could not persist in, in, uh, in that environment. So what happened was the real estate mutual funds were all uh, locked. The, uh, the mutual fund sponsor uh, essentially froze those mutual funds. Money could not come out. 
um, and uh, until the uh, about time for for things to recover. And uh, one of the more well-known ones at the time uh, actually uh, converted to what is called a REIT now, Real Estate Investment Trust, which trades on the market and has daily valuation. But in the course of converting, and it had to mark to market, it had to uh, recognize the true value of the underlying real estate, and it took a 50% haircut. Wow. Um, which was huge. And uh, subsequently did quite well. You know, anyone who bought into it back then um, did quite well over the course. Of time. It was a well-managed uh fine. There was nothing wrong with the way it was being managed. It's just a function of what was going on in the real estate market at the time. So again, a very tumultuous time, a lot of communication with clients, a lot of hand-holding. Um, eventually, uh, things recovered. And uh, as we know, the 1990s ended up being one of the best decades for the for the financial markets in, in history. And Dad, one thing that uh, I want to touch on, just going, because you and I actually talked about this recently, was the uh, the savings and loan crisis draws some similarities to uh, what has been occurring recently. Uh, we've had a, uh, a similar real estate craze as we talked about in our uh, episode with Corrado Russo, um, especially here in uh, in Canada and the GTA, but uh, also elsewhere, the uh, there have been you know, significant increases in real estate valuations, in part due to uh, the interest rate environment that we're currently living in. Well, so, I, I I would say I would say that less so today and more so in the period leading up to the uh, Great Recession, uh, 07, 08. Uh, when the uh, 07, 08 crisis was unfolding, I was at the time thinking about the savings and loan crisis and saying this is very similar to that. And um, that was the parallel I was drawing at the time. I, I, today, the, the circumstances behind the real estate um, um, exponential increase uh, in North America, more so here in Canada, has has a lot to do with with, um, uh, demographic demographic changes and the the influx of uh, immigration uh, that is uh, essentially unhindered. Um, So I I think the situation today is somewhat different and also the the banking industry um, through through government uh, I, I shouldn't say government intervention because they, they did not intervene, but essentially it was uh, there. It was an, an agreement made uh, between the government and the banks that they they would take on uh, mortgages only if people would qualify at uh, at what they considered a, a more normal rate. So when interest rates were down at one and two percent, uh, you weren't being qualified as a purchaser based on those interest rates. You were being qualified on the, on the basis of five and six percent. So what's going on today with interest rates going up and, and uh, rates going higher, there's going to be less of an impact on Canadians. That's not to say there won't be an impact. There still will be an impact, but it's not going to be on the magnitude of the savings and loan crisis in the U.S. over the early 90s or, or the 07, 08 uh, Great Recession. Okay. Yeah, and, and that's exactly where I was going to uh, chime in with that as well. I think the other thing to keep in mind here, because we, we did get a question about this uh, yesterday during our uh our prospect presentation that we held was uh, whether or not we expect a, a crash in the Canadian uh, real estate market, uh, uh, an imminent crash, I guess, is a better way of uh, phrasing that. And the thing that I, the way that I answered that last night was, uh, based on the current information that's available, it seems unlikely that the Canadian uh, Mortgage and Housing Corporation, uh, CMHC in, uh, in Canada, uh, recently released research that stated in order to bring housing prices back to early 2000s levels, pricing levels, we would need to build an, an additional three and a half million homes across Canada. So yeah. that would suggest that there's ample demand still for housing and real estate within Canada to uh, to not allow prices to uh, go into a free fall like they did in the late 80s and early 90s. Now, before uh, before we wrap up here, Dad, I just wanted to ask you really quickly, do you have anything you wanted to add on the, uh, the Gulf War and uh, that can be uh, condensed into a minute or two, or uh, do you want to uh, save anything on that for our next episode? Um, I, I will. I'll, I will say briefly that uh, about a, uh, um, two days before the Gulf War, I was uh, a guest on uh, on a tro- on the biggest Toronto radio station on a on a radio program that's uh, focused on money, and. Uh, it was a call-in show, so we were talking about what was going on at the time, and there was uh, the the amount of panic was incredible. 
people were calling and saying, um, are we going to see, because the, the war was imminent, it was uh, at that point uh, led by the U.S., uh, there were uh, forces amassed in Saudi Arabia in uh, in the staging environment about to, to enter uh, Kuwait. Uh, and people were calling and saying, this is, this is horrible. It's the beginning of the Third World War. Um, uh, should we be selling everything and buying gold? Uh, these were the nature of the questions I was getting at the time. Um, you know, stock, stocks are going to continue to be terrible. And, um, and, and, even as a as a young a young guy back then, uh, I did know have enough knowledge of economic history and market history uh, that uh, I responded by saying, "Look, this is not the beginning of the Third World War. This is not, you know, uh, Nazi Germany, uh, 1939. Uh, this is a, a a regional conflict that is unlikely to last any material length of time." And um, the stock market is at the pressed values at the present time. It's actually a great buying opportunity. And I mentioned at the time, I don't remember the number exactly, but there was a, a vast amount of money sitting on the sidelines in cash. And I, I said, once, once this crisis dissipates uh, and this money starts moving back into the market, we're going to have a huge boom in the stock market. And uh, that's precisely what happened uh, in the ensuing time period. Interest rates started to come down. The war was wrapped up in a, a rather short time frame, and uh, things recovered. And um, it was uh, the 1990s ended up unfolding into being one of the, the best decades in history for for growth of capital in in the financial markets. Absolutely, absolutely. So with that, I think we'll. Uh, I was hoping to get to the Asian uh, financial crisis, which uh, was. Uh, uh, brought forth by the uh, Thai bat devaluation, but we're going to save that. So it's 1997. So that's a little preview of what we're going to uh, cover in our next market uh, crises episode. I think based on how far we got today and how much information we had, this is probably going to end up being a, a three-part series. So uh, we'll tag this as part one of three uh, to be followed by uh, the Asian financial crisis, the dot-com bubble, and then eventually get into the uh, the Great Recession in the, uh, the late 2000s. So uh, with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Bill. Yeah, fascinating episode. Brought back a lot of uh, memories for me <laughs> as well because <laughs> some John, of them. I, I, I remember the SNL crisis very yeah. vividly as well. And in, in, it's uh, it's devastating to realize the impact that uh, you know bad real estate markets can have on badly managed banks when they're leveraged. Yeah, in that kind of yeah. way. Well, and uh, Bill, you're you being in the United States, uh, you probably had a, a front uh, window of view on on what unfolded. And uh, if there's anything I said that uh, was not uh, accurate, no, 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 you were you were you were spot on. And yeah, I was. I was. You know, I was looking out the window of the plane at the whole mess. Thinking, <laughs> oh, good grief, man! Yeah, yeah, it's just it's a it's amazing. It is an instructive period. Uh, for for people to look back on because it's good to remember that markets don't always go up. No market always continually goes up. Markets go up, they go down. Markets can be extremely volatile. Um, you know, so this kind of perspective I think is really useful and helpful for people uh, when they're looking at the markets and they're having their conversation with their financial advisors about what can happen in markets. There are no guarantees. There are trends. There are things that you can lean on, uh, you know, and certainly trust in your financial advisor is one of those key points. And speaking of that, anybody who's been listening who aren't currently clients of yours, how do they reach out to you all and get in touch with you to maybe have a further conversation? Absolutely. They can reach out to us uh, at info at medwealth.ca. That's info at med-wealth.ca. Uh, they can go to our, our website, which is www.medwealth.ca. We're also available on LinkedIn and Twitter, uh, and they can reach us by, by phone. All that information is on the website. So uh, feel free to uh, journey over there and uh, get everything that you need. That's excellent. Great, guys. Thank you very much for this episode. Thank you, listeners, for listening. If you like what you heard and you're not a subscriber, please hit the subscribe button. That way you don't have to remember when John and Alex have the next podcast because you'll get it. <laughs> It'll be delivered to you. If you like this podcast, we humbly ask that you rate it and share it with other people so that you spread the word 
about the good work that they're doing and let others know about what's happening. Please, if this episode reminds you of nothing else, don't wait. Live your best life today. Thank you for listening to Prescribing Prosperity. Visit our website at med-wealth.ca. That's med-wealth.ca for more information or to connect with us for a consultation. Don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and their guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of IPC Securities Corporation. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. Always seek the advice of a qualified and licensed financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment or retirement planning. MedWealth Financial Services can provide a private consultation to help you determine the suitability of any guidance discussed on the show.